drink. I told you I was going to grab a kombucha, a booch, if you will, but I actually grabbed an iced coffee. Oh, iced coffee. That that sounds healthier. I worry about the living, what is it? It's a living drink, the kombucha. I worry about living things in me, but I guess there's lots of living things in me, but I worry. I worry, James. <laughs> there are living things. I don't drink a lot of kombucha. I, uh, Heather likes kombucha, but also she doesn't love kombucha. It's more of like every once in a while, but there is places near us. There are places, there is and are places near us that will fill a growler of kombucha. So we had some family in town and they enjoy kombucha. So instead of just going b- little tiny bottles of kombucha, I'll buy, we just fill the growler. But this morning I made four coffees, drank four coffees and we we're live streaming. So I drank a kombucha. So then in my mind, I was about to refill the kombucha. And then I said, what would Frank do? Would he drink a second sec- kombucha? <laughs> no, he would dr- grab a nice coffee. So that's what I'm <laughs> drinking currently. You don't sound at all wired, James. This is going to go so much fun. <laughs> um, I need more caffeine to keep up with you. <laughs> it is concentrated cold brew. And here's the recommendation, Frank. Get yourself down to Trader Joe's. They have concentrated coconut cold brew. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't, it's not like super flavored with coconut. Cause you might not, I'm like, I'm not a huge coconut person. Okay. I do like coconut but not too much coconut, but it's concentrate. So it's one part concentrate, two parts water or milk or whatever you want to put in it. So I put one part, here's my mixture, one part concentrate, one part water, one part macadamia almond milk. Boom. That's what I have right now. Oh my God. I am lucky when I get the instant coffee to come out right. (laughs) This is like my goal when I make coffee. I'm just kidding. I'm not quite that bad. Yes, I am. Um, Wow, that that sounds wonderful and delicious. But you've always been a coffee person. So it's good to know that you're keeping it up, keeping that hobby going. I'm not going to call it anything other than a hobby, (laughs) but good for you. (laughs) Well, you know, what what, what brought me to the topic of coffee, not just because I wanted to talk about coffee. I always want to talk about coffee, but... I was recently at one of the coffee shops downtown. There's by the Space Needle. There's a La Mar La Marzocca. How do you spell it? La Marzocca? Mm, it's the Italian, okay. Florence-based Italian espresso maker. Ooh, ooh. La oh, maker. Ma- La Marzocco. <laughs> okay. okay. Yes. And the Zocco by the Sea. The Zocco by the Sea. Now, this facility. The La Marzocco Cafe. It's inside of KEXP. You know where KEXP is at? Oh, this is fun now. This is a more fun field trip. Um, I don't I don't think I've been to the new KEXP building, but I was to the old ancient one when I first moved out here. KEXP, for those not listening, is just a fun little local radio station here in Seattle. You can listen to it on you can listen to it on iTunes. It's digital streaming. It's all in the future, man. And if you don't have iTunes, you could just go to the browser and type in KEXP Seattle and get that. Now, the cool thing about KEXP is they have, I went on a tour there. Heather took me on a tour. They have live DJs that spin vinyl and they spin, they have, they can spin vinyl or digital, whatever they want, but they're picking the songs. It's not a computer. Like a lot of times DJs and BJs and stuff, they have computers that they're just, you know, on a checklist they have to play. Like they have their own thing that goes on, but there's a La Marzocco in there. It's the only one in the entire world. This is a showroom. And these are beautiful, stunning espresso machines. 
And mm-hmm. as I started to go past some of their machines and their weight scales and um, the pour over mechanisms, I started to see this trend into more of hardware and software enabled coffee making, especially in these tiny scales that they have to weigh items and also smart like uh, coffee machines and smart um, uh, pour over kettles where all of these things are ran by tiny little like system on a chip circuit boards, you know, like add a fruit slash raspberry pie type of <laughs> things. Like, but even smaller, like let's say you take a an add a fruit like trinket type of thing, like that tiny itty bitty thing is like running these devices. And that's what I wanted to talk about because I really want to get into this tiny itty bitty micro sort of circuitry. And I know that you, Frank, happen to be an eye circuit specialist. <laughs> uh, specifically eye circuit specialist. Yeah, that's the, that's the <laughs> only thing that you know. Yeah. Not a circuit, yeah, just an eye basically. circuit. No, no, right. It has to, have, yeah, has to be personal circuits. So we're talking about automating coffee machines. Awesome. <laughs> I love the fact that like this is all artisanal coffee and yet they're using industrial automation now. So like where is the line between artisanal and industrial when you can just get like a little raspberry pie or something. But either way, if you're going to let me talk about embedded hardware, I am here for this. Let's do it. IoT, coffee, little devices. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Because they have these like, you know, they have these little, and by little, I mean $7,000 espresso machines that you can buy at home. But there's different models of it. And the base model is all manual. You know, so, it, you know, it you figure out the yeah. temperature, the the pressure, all this stuff. And then the upgraded model has dials and sensors and, and, and LCDs on it telling you all of the the things, but I've never stopped to think, how does that all happen? Like, how does it know that it's 205 degrees Fahrenheit? Like, how does that even happen? (laughs) Ooh, fun. Um, so it, it, it's, it's a lot, you have a lot of choices with like temperature stuff. This is a nice solved problem. I once had a friend at work show me the easiest way to make a temperature sensor. You um, get two pieces of wire, twist their ends together, find yourself a piece of metal, find yourself a hammer and whack the end of it with a hammer. And you've built a temperature sensor, James. Ooh, That's all okay. you need. Yep. <laughs> So, so that that would be a thermal couple. And the funny thing about that funny thing, so when you slam it with a hammer, you're doing something called um, a cold weld. You're actually merging those pieces of wire together. But it's not a perfect weld. And the weld is sensitive to temperature fluctuations. And that changes the resistance of those wires. And so very easily, in fact, for almost no money and just a hammer, you can make yourself a temperature sensor. I don't recommend it. You should just go on Amazon. They have like packs of 20 of them for $5. It's much easier. Yeah. Probably, (laughs) probably much, much easier. Yeah. Uh, Well, I mean, I mean, I know that I've, I've picked up in the past, you know, there's little IOT devices that you can sort of get, but um, I was sort of really interested. Like what, what is inside of these machines? Cause it's more than mechanical now. Like I was just sending you this mod bar, which um, you know, this is what it literally says. Like it's a, product years in R&D that bring together like these espresso machines and on the top <laughs> is like this tap and then underneath there's like IO sensors power and there's pumps and there's water in water out and oh yeah there's measuring and there's all these things that are 
probably coming together to actually make every bit of that work. Yeah. And it's tricky when you do embedded stuff because you end up spending a lot of time writing very low level code that's talking to hardware, you know, reading specific sensor values, opening this valve, closing that valve, that it's very easy to lose sight of the forest for the trees. And a lot of that comes down to you building abstractions or having good abstractions provided for you. But it's funny how often you get lost just working with hardware that you stop even working on the complicated high-level algorithm, you know. Um, What kind of temperature should they have? Um, How much water should it release into the system for your ideal coffee maker? Those are like very complicated things to figure out, and you're going to want to tune it over time and calibrate it and drink lots of test coffees and do all that. And you can't do any of that stuff if you're stuck working at the super low, low level and using kind of junky languages, if I will. Like I'm specifically thinking of people writing C C code in uh, Arduino. It's hard to think at a high level because you're dealing with so many low level problems. Yeah, that's what always we had talked about machine learning for the masses previously on the mm-hmm. last uh, lightning talks that we did, lightning topics that we did. And I always thought about, well, what about IoT or microprocessing processors for the masses? And we had talked in the past about, you know, Raspberry Pis and Netduinos and things like that. And I know Raspberry Pi 4 just came out and you were very excited about it. Mm-hmm. Correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But that's still kind of a barrier of entry. I mean, these boards are, you know, still 40, 50 bucks. So in the masses, beyond just IoT, when I think about these boards that you could buy, like when you look at some of these Adafruits that you can buy, they're like $10. You know what I mean? You could do yeah. real things with them. Yeah. Um, so a few things, a few topics out of what you just said there. I pay a lot of attention to the educational side of all this IoT stuff. So it's fun for us to talk about building a coffee maker and automating ridiculous things in our apartments. But I like to keep track of what are schools teaching kids and how can I write software, keep kind of just keep up. You know, I don't want to be the crusty old guy that says, you know, you can do everything this way and not do it any other way. So I'd like to see how the community changes and specifically how kids are learning these days and how kids are being taught. And I noticed that um, you mentioned Adafruit. Uh, It's a company out there that builds a bunch of hardware, these kind of small boards and sensors and that kind of stuff. And they're trying to dominate the market and take it over from Arduino and release a new environment for writing code. And they call it CircuitPython. And as you could probably guess from the name, it's writing code in Python instead of C. And I think just for that very reason right there, it's something worth looking at if it means uh, not teaching kids C code. Uh, actually, I'll get your opinion on that, but I want to go back to the C topic too. What, what do you think about Python on these boards? Uh, well, you know, if I had to pick... I would prefer never to write C code. So (laughs) I'd imagine anything's easier. And I would also say that people and individuals that learn Python stuff, there's a lot of multi uses for it too. I mean, we talked about it in the machine learning space. There's Mm -hmm. web uses for it. I think a lot of people pick it up because it is a very readable language. I think that's what makes it uh, consumable in, in different mediums. 
just like I think C sharp is a higher level readable language in general, um, where Python might even be somewhere in between where there's like a it's it's kind of like looser like JavaScript, but has some more readability like C sharp. Is that an accurate statement for Python? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we should say, if you're not familiar with it, it is a dynamic language. So it's uh, more similar to JavaScript, I would say, than to C Sharp, because C Sharp is a good static language that checks all your types to make sure you're doing everything right. Python, its semantic model is it's a script. It's just executing. When it gets to that line, hopefully that line is correct. <laughs> if it's not, it'll hopefully throw an error and stop doing what it's doing. The other nice thing about it, as you mentioned, is the syntax is pretty nice. So I think it works well as an educational language. Um, it's this funny debate between white space sensitive languages and curly brace <laughs> languages. And I haven't taught to many people how to program, but I can say the less syntax a language has, usually the better the odds are of people learning it. If they have to learn a bunch of hieroglyphics or ASCII art to write code, I think it's a real not a barrier to succeeding, but it's definitely an uphill battle that you have to learn all that stuff. Well, I think that's why you see even C sharp starting to look more into like the world of like, like uh, what F sharp is doing and, and some aspects of it and what other programming languages are doing. How do you get rid of some of that verbosity that's inside of your language? Yeah. One thing that Kotlin was really uh, famous for of, of simplifying what your model looks like. So Instead of having all of your properties and getters and setters and all that stuff, you just created a constructor definition and that became like just, the compiler knew what everything was from that single line of mm -hmm. code. And that was one of the big demos that they would show off, like, look at this Java code. <laughs> now look at this Kotlin code. And you're right. It's like yeah. the easier the syntax. It's it's not that it's hard, but it's less to cognitive load from the very get go. Yeah, maybe it's the steepness of the hill that you're going up. Is it a steep hill or a more shallow hill? But, you know, something funny happens in the education realm. And um, it's kind of a fun thing that kids don't like to be pandered to. So, you know, we start out with these environments like Scratch. Have you heard of Scratch? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So visual programming, it's kind of fun. You like snap together blocks. It has if statements and you can figure out variables. It's tricky, but it can do um, if, if state, whatever, blocks. <laughs> you snap the blocks together. It's yeah. fun. But um, quickly, the uh, kids start, once they get to an age, start to feel a little bit pandered to. And they know that all the really complicated stuff, all that terrible embedded stuff that we've been building for 50 years, is kind of all written in C. And so this funny thing happens where they want to, you know, grow up and program like adults. So they get this idea that they should learn how to program and see and do all that stuff. And I don't want to argue against that, but it, I think it's a good lesson if these kids learn that you want to stick to high level as long as you can. <laughs> Dip down to see when you need to, but uh, don't let pride get in your way. There's nothing wrong with uh, Python and .NET. And in fact, the embedded world, the IoT world desperately needs um, languages with more guarantees, managed languages like Python and .NET. Well, let's talk about a little bit what Adafruit's doing, especially about taking that library to Python from C. But let's first take a quick break, Frank. I thank our good sponsor this week, Telerik. Yes, 
The amazing team over at Telerik Progress has everything that you need for awesome applications for everything. Whether you're building a desktop app, a web app, IoT applications, Xamarin applications, mobile applications, you name it, they have a Telerik UI toolkit for you. In fact, they even have support for Blazor. That's right, Blazor. They have a rich set of web UI components that you can drop directly into your Blazor applications today. That means you make everything in C-sharp rather than JavaScript. That's right. Put it all C-sharp in the browser. It's awesome. Now, if you're creating Xamarin mobile applications, the Telerik UI for Xamarin has everything that you need from start to finish, controls, charts, graphs, pop-up controls, PDF viewers, doc layouts, you name it, they have more. Head over to Telerik.com, select a platform that you want, and tell them that Frank and James sent you for Merge Conflict, and thanks to Telerik for sponsoring this week's pod. Thank you, Telerik. Yeah. So cool. traditionally, these boards see. When I think of Arduino, I remember I got an Arduino-based uh, little game thing. Like it was like a, like a Game Boy type of thing, and you could program it. And I opened up Arduino Studio or whatever it was, and it was like, write the C code, and I closed it. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't even have IntelliSense, James. How do people program without IntelliSense? I don't know. It's, it's impossible. Just, it's the worst. It's I just, I'm like, A. A, nope, nope, doesn't start with A. <laughs> so let's see. I want to talk about the CircuitPython more, but first I want to give some context that, yeah, other people have tried to do high-level, or not tried, people have succeeded at doing high-level languages on embedded devices because I think we all kind of come to this conclusion that we shouldn't be dealing with raw memory pointers when we want to have reliable systems. And so in the past, yep, we've had um, basic Actually, there's this I love cool basic. embedded love basic. basic. That's yeah. what I, you know, that was our first class, my first class in high school. No, I actually skipped this one. Shh, don't tell anybody. Mm -hmm. I'm, I, but I'm sad that I, I did miss it. We were they were doing basic programming and then you could program your calculator in basic. The TI-83. Yeah. Um, awesome. And, yeah. And honestly, if you want to get into embedded stuff and you've ever done basic before, I bet you'd find it very pleasurable because basic is so basic you know if you're a programmer you'll remember how to do it it might have to read a document here or there to remember how to create variables and all that but once you get once you remember how basic works it's fun and i think that that's an absolutely fine way to program these embedded devices it's certainly i mean you'll write a fraction of the code compared to c and basic wasn't even optimized for shortness it was optimized for readability mm. and so i think that that's a great option out there but then uh, there's another language that people d used for embedded stuff, and that's called Lua. Have you used Lua? I've not used the Lua, but I know of the Lua because there was a game engine based on Lua um, scripting language. Lua game. Wasn't it a game engine, actually? That's how I know of it. Uh you know, it's actually used in a lot of game engines. Uh, the thing with Lua is it's a very good implementation. It's a, a fast parser, fast executor, and it's very small. And that's why game engines use it. Uh, I think I'm trying to Corona. Remember, but... That's the one that I know of, Corona. Mm -hmm. I had a friend develop an app in Corona, which was Lua-based. Yeah. Yeah. And there's something for the iPad called Codea, and you can write iPad games in Lua right on mm -hmm. the device. It's really cool. That's I use that for a lot of inspiration when working on continuous. Uh, and that was used in the embedded space because it was small and efficient. So the thing is, we're just going up in complexity of languages and what they provide, basically going up the scale. 
And so we're, we're going to not quite get to .NET. .NET's a bit heavier than these ones. But a really interesting thing happened, and someone forked Python and created a thing called MicroPython. Oh, gosh. Little itty-bitty wee Python. <laughs> tiny, tiny little, little cute little, look at that. Look at that Python. It's so tiny. It's Aww, a baby Python. Yeah. It's a baby Python. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Now, Python's already pretty tight. It's pretty small. Um, but, you know, you always have this question of how much of the standard library do you include? You know, when you think about like a basic .NET installation, when you say the word basic, it's like, well, does that include com bindings to Microsoft Word? Or does that just mean you get string, system.string, and that's it? And so you, you have the same trade-off with this MicroPython. But the truth is, just like I was arguing with that basic code, when you're writing embedded systems, if you abstract away all the low-level hardware stuff, the actual logic of a lot of these IoT things, like, again, how much heat to apply, how much water to add, the logic is pretty simple, and you want to keep that pretty clear. So I think it's fine to have these kind of stripped-down languages that are syntactically correct, work a lot like their bigger counterparts, but are made for the micro world, the tiny world. The tiny world. So what normally would you run these on then like is there hardware that's like this is micro python optimized then uh i don't know if there's any hardware branding themselves as optimized for it but um as we keep gosh we should be getting paid for this james the um adafruit website has a bunch of hardware you can use it on but the thing is circuit python is an open source project Mm. so you can Go to the GitHub, download it, and compile it for a lot of different boards. Boards that are just generic boards that however you get them, or microprocessors, I should be saying. However you get them, you get them. Get them on Amazon, get them on whatever. (laughs) Your local store, whoever's got them. The thing is, um, Python, at least when I was compiling it, was still around 200 kilobytes. Now, Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, so huge. I know, it doesn't sound like a lot in the modern world, but in the embedded world, that's a lot. Mm. So um, there are only a few, um, you need a semi bigger device. It won't run on the cheapest Arduino, the Arduino Nano. That's kind of my benchmark for cheap little device. And it unfortunately won't run on there. But remember, I always talk about uh, my other favorite hardware device the esp32 it's this tiny little chip with a wi-fi on it yes runs beautifully on there oh interesting. <laughs> well, okay. it just fits but it fits <laughs> so it's, it's kind of nice you can think of it as um almost an operating system but python's a basic language it doesn't do threading james no system dot threading gotcha that yeah. makes sense no await huh. no no uh no events. Want want. <laughs> but but do otherwise, you need that on an embedded device though? See, that's what that's the fact. I think you can argue you don't. Um you you can do a lot without it. I think the fun things here is it just offers the protection of a managed language. It's a garbage collector, just like in the .NET world, and it gives you that safety. So I think you're right. You really don't need those extra features. Sometimes you miss um um await async await i gotta tell you that thing you know you get used to having it around hmm. well so let's say i have some circuit python like how do i code for it then you know what i mean 
Yeah, um, you, you have a few options depending on how big your device is. So you could install this CircuitPython thing, which is a binary. You could compile it yourself or go download it from somewhere. And you install it onto the device, and then you connect to the device with the USB cable. And ideally, you would have a little Python prompt where you can start, like, uh, Python has a REPL. Oh. Remember those? Yeah. Read so you could start loop. Yes. Yep. So you're, you got your Python and you can say, load up some code, start running that code. So that's pretty easy, I would say. I, I think that's a pretty nice setup. Um, alternatively, you can do trickier things and try to get over the air transmission. So if it's a script, then you could technically receive it over Wi-Fi or have it go to a server and download its code. You know, it, it's kind of up to you to get tricky there and do fun things with it. What's the um, what type of things are you going to program on on these boards, though, I guess? Is it just reading sensors, writing sensors, manipulating sensors? And how much code can you actually write? Because if if it's already mm -hmm. just small bit and piece, right, it's not like you have you're not putting on a mobile phone, right? It's it's on this tiny little device. What all can you actually do? Uh, I guess I should start with, um, I, I should have mentioned that you can also pre-compile the code. So you're not actually sending a script. You're sending more of a bytecode version, kind of like the IL from .NET. Oh, okay. So on your host machine, you could do that and send it over. And the nice thing there is you could actually trim down the Python installation so it doesn't include the parser, you know, the, the REPL. You could take the REPL out. And now you're sending over binaries. It's a little less convenient because now you have a compiler. You know, what's supposed to be a scripting language is now a compiled language, just like C Sharp. So it's a little funny. But I would say um, you can write very large amounts of code. Certainly, I mean, robots level of sophistication, I would say, is achievable. The little board that I'm talking about, that SP32, that thing runs at 100 megahertz or 200 megahertz, however you set it up. And you can get things done with that. I think that's always the complaint against scripting languages is that they're slow and memory hungry compared to nicely compiled code. But as long as you're just doing your high level logic in it, I think it's you can write quite large things, honestly. So the real question then is that we know what we can build with it, what we can do with it. But what is Frank doing with it? That's what everybody actually <laughs> cares about. Let's be honest, because you know that we don't talk about stuff here on Merge Conflict unless literally one of us is working on something. So what <laughs> the heck is Frank doing? I brought it full circle, Frank, from my coffee addiction to whatever the heck Frank is doing with this crazy <laughs> Python shenanigans. Oh, God. Yeah. So why is this .NET developer talking about this Python thing? We could also label it that. Um, I have an app out there called iCircuit. Yay. Prom Self-promotion. Go buy it. Help me out. <laughs> um, and in it, I added a feature, well, I think it's a couple years ago now, where you could put a little Arduino in your circuit simulation and write Arduino code. And that's the C and C++ code that we all know and love that we just talked a whole show about how we hate writing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I added that. But honestly, you have to do start there because that's where the hobbyist world exists for coding things. But I did notice that um, more and more classes are being taught with this CircuitPython thing, this 
great marketing campaign by Adafruit is certainly succeeding. Look, we're talking about it. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah, good marketing. Good job. <laughs> Proves some things. So anyway, <laughs> I wanted to make sure that students who are learning CircuitPython can use my app and can experiment around with it in my app. So maybe you don't want to go out there and buy one of these boards until you've had a chance to play around with it a little bit. So just as a feature in my app, I, as a goal, I wanted to allow you to program using CircuitPython, James. How hard could it be? How hard? Well, it's open source. So basically, you just copy and paste those files into your code and then it's done, right? Yeah, drag and drop. Drag and drop. Yeah, try to make it easy. God, why don't we live in that world? (laughs) Wouldn't that be nice? (laughs) If like software was actually compatible with each other. (laughs) Well, so you then have to have it so you can execute CircuitPython on the device. Interpret, yeah. right? Can you interpret yeah. code on the device? Is it allowed? There? Yes, it's allowed. Yeah. The only thing you can't do is um, download core features of your app over the internet. Okay. Apple says no, no. But you can certainly allow people to write scripts in your app. And that's how apps like iCircuit, or not iCircuit, but Continuous Works. And um, yeah, I guess iCircuit too with that Arduino support. Yeah, because you're writing, so a, is, you're writing yeah. a script, but you're not they're not modifying your app with it. You know what I mean? Right. It's not like yeah. changing the functionality of your app. And that's the no-no. Yeah, it's a feature of the app. It's not the app itself. Exactly. Yeah, you can't change the app. Yeah, so that's allowed. Um, and it's fun. I recommend everyone throw in scripting languages. <laughs> there are some good ones out there. But the problem is, uh, how do you run Python in a Xamarin app? I have a Xamarin app. It's a C-sharp app. And I had a few options here. Remember Iron Python? I yes. could use. I was thinking of trying to use that puppy. But do you know the problem with Iron Python on Xamarin? I do not know. Well, one, Iron Python, so so people don't know. From my recollection, there was Iron Python and Iron Ruby. Is that correct? Yep. Well, yep. You got it. The idea was bring C Sharp to those, to Python and to Ruby? Nope. Other no. direction to make it so that you can write .NET code in Ruby and Python. So you can make a .NET library Got in it. Ruby or Python. The, pro- the Python yeah. programming language for the .NET framework. Yep. And it's actually in, you know, it's, it's not perfect. Not a lot of people are working on it right now, but it certainly works well enough for the tasks that CircuitPython needs. You know, c- comparing that to MicroPython, it works fine. Now, the problem, unfortunately, is that it uses the DLR, the Dynamic Language Runtime. Yeah. And forever, the DLR is not supported on Xamarin. Now, there is potential out there with the interpreter and all that stuff of perhaps using the DLR, but I didn't want to bank on it, you know? Like, can I guarantee Iron Python's going to work everywhere? So just for fun, I thought I would go through the effort of trying to get of trying to embed python into my xamarin app how weird is that okay um uh, so are you writing c code then to like is there a bridge glue <laughs> like I, what's happening here? yeah <laughs> so python's written in c that's yes. good um because very good. it's a easy yeah it's better than c plus plus and for the reason if you don't know why i'm saying that it's because it is super easy to make c sharp and f sharp talk to c code 
it is also super annoying to make a talk to a C++ code. (laughs) (laughs) So the fact that it's written in C gives me kind of a heads up. So it's like, as long as you can get the thing to compile into a binary, then I can write a nice, easy C-sharp wrapper over it, send it code, tell it to execute, you know, do that kind of stuff. So embed Python interpreter into my C-sharp app. Ooh, so did you do it? I mean, that's why we're talking about it, right? You obviously did it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I did it. Um, but now I'm going to repeat myself. Remember a long, long time ago, I was talking about how I had a bunch of native code, a lot of C code that I wanted to put into iCircuit, but iCircuit runs on a million platforms and I didn't know what to do. Do I create a million different fat libraries? The yeah. fat library question, James. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm I'm back to that problem of, yes, I have it working, at least in very limited cases, but now I'm going back to my crazy tool that converts native code into .NET code, and I'm trying to use that one uh, to compile Python into .NET. Can you, the Python interpreter I'm compiling into .NET, to are you ready for that? Yeah. Can you handle that? I'm ready. My <laughs> brain is exploding. So there's an IL, there's a .NET standard assembly that is the Python interpreter. No native dependencies. It's just Python. You can import it into any app. It's 600K, and here's Python. So that's what I'm working on right now, is having this .NET version of Python. That's not Iron Python, but it's a .NET standard library that is Python. Mm. Woo! Did I say any of that in an understandable way? You have ported <laughs> Python to .NET standard so I can magically embed, embed Python <laughs> into my .NET applications. Yes. Weird, huh? Ship it. But yes. Why not? I mean, <laughs> ship it. Done. <laughs> I mean, I mean, now that's kind of cool because how I think of it, right, is like maybe there's some really cool Python files, some Python scripts or something that you want to run inside your app. Like you could do that. Yeah. Or just as a scripting language. Remember when apps had scripting languages in them so that you could automate things? I mean, that's always been the promise of these scripting languages is you have this big complex library of functionality, the app and do this stuff. It doesn't come up much in mobile apps, you know, how much scripting language do you want to do on an iPhone? But in this world of iPad and desktop apps that are all the same app, UWP apps in particular, where you're spreading it across all these different platforms, it makes sense to start baking scripting languages into your apps again. Very fun times, fun times. Now I'm giving myself an out here because I don't have it fully working. So I might still have to go the route of um, actual native libraries and using P invoke and wrappers and all that. But for now, it's looking pretty promising that I'll have this fun little .NET version of Python (laughs) that you can just throw into anything. Very cool. I can't wait to try it out. And if any of our listeners are writing tons of Python code, let us know. And if you want to do this, Maybe it'd be, are you open? Is this open source or you're just private repo? Private repo. Oh, it's a, it's actually open source. Yeah, because I forked the Python, MicroPython library. So it's all open source. Look at that. Wow. Look at me. Open sourcey. Yeah. And this is one of the, the things where I usually follow Frank Krueger and then I look at his repositories and then I, I see what is he up to? What is this <laughs> fork going on? 
And that's where it's at right there. Look at that. Yeah. Wow. I, I forked it. That's forked crazy. <laughs> Very cool. All right, Frank. Well, as always, I'm mind boggled of everything that you do in life. And now I kind of know potentially what's running inside these coffee coffee makers. We'd have to buy one and open them up, <laughs> to be honest with you. That seems expensive. Yeah. So maybe we won't oh. do that. But oh, well, that would have been fun. Well, reverse engineering hardware is actually not that easy. <laughs> well, I once had that job and it was hard. Well, one thing I do want to do with you is I bought a replacement LCD for my Game Boy Color. Okay. Oh, gosh, that sounds hard. That sounds like hard soldering. Are you going to make me solder tiny little things? Now, here's the fun part is that it requires no soldering, but optional soldering. <laughs> okay. Because you can... I like optional. That's weird. <laughs> optional. It's very cool because you can optionally make it so when you press a certain key press, you can adjust the brightness of the LCD, but you got to solder some stuff. So I figure maybe this weekend we can do a little experimentation on my Game Boy Color. I am so nervous, but also so into it. You have insurance, right? That covers random friends with soldering irons. I mean, we're going to do it at your house. I hope that you have the insurance. Oh, great. <laughs> you hear, heard it here, folks. This is where the show ended. <laughs> over if you argument. don't, if, you, if there's no episode 162, you know what happened. If I killed his Nintendo and James never speaks to me ever again. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. All right. I'm in. Let's do it. All right. Cool. All right, everyone. Well, thanks for everyone for listening to this week's podcast. If you have any suggestions of topics or things you want to hear, you head over to mergeconflict.fm and let us know. We love talking about all crazy, ridiculous topics just like this one, um, which I absolutely love. And I love talking about coffee. So that basically brings a smile to my eyes, to my face, to my smile to my eyes and to my face, whatever that is. I've had too much coffee, Frank. This is what's happened. Uh, I didn't notice. <laughs> or did you? Oh, yeah. So. All right. Well, uh, I think it's going to do it for this week's podcast. Of course, you can follow us on Twitter at Merge Conflict FM. Thanks, everyone, once again for being a listener, being a Patreon supporter, being a follower, being just just being awesome in our lives. And thanks to Frank for putting up with me each and every week. So that's going to do it for this week's pod. Until next time, I'm James Montemagno. And I'm Frank Krueger. Thanks for listening. Peace. <laughs>